This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for tuning in. It's free and it's easy to watch. Tell your friends and family to go to the website, ADH, don't forget the dot, ADH.TV and click the Watch Now button flashing in the corner. Our job at ADH is to tell you how things are, not how you might want them to be. We'll always stay true to that mission. Tonight on the program, I'll speak with the new independent member for the seat of Fowler in Western Sydney, Di Lee. We had her on the show two weeks ago because she deserved to be heard. All the press was about those teal independents and not much left over for real independents like Di. She's the Deputy Mayor of Fairfield. Now she's the federal member for the seat of Fowler. It was a real grassroots campaign taking on Labor's Christina Keneally, the Scotland Island local, but the right candidate prevailed. I'll speak shortly with her, but what about this? And please tell me, now sit down. If you're not sitting down, you've got to sit down. <laughs> please tell me this isn't a sign of what is to come under an Albanese government. I consider Penny Wong to be a very smart lady, but surely she doesn't believe in this nonsense. Her grand plan, after nine years in the political wilderness, her first act as foreign minister is to deliver a, quote, First Nations foreign policy. What on earth is that? And the Labor policy somehow, quote, weaves the voices and practices of the world's oldest continuing culture into the way we talk to the world and in the work of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Yep. Is this comedy hour? Penny, are you serious? As Australia's new foreign minister, your concentration isn't on China's aggression in our region or on Russia's invasion of Ukraine or a weaker America or our neighbours in the Pacific, or on Kim Jong-un or Myanmar jailing a democratically elected leader, or the bloodshed and riots in Sri Lanka. No, no, no. Your concentration is on appointing a, quote, ambassador for First Nations peoples to, quote, ensure First Nations peoples have a stronger voice in our engagement with the world and deepening their long-held ties across countries of the Indo-Pacific, unquote. I thought Anthony Albanese told Australians on Saturday night that he would unite the country. This is the polar opposite of uniting us. Stop shaking your heads. What do you think? Email me, Alan Jones at adh.tv. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, now, look, there's no doubt that the epithet wipeout in Saturday's federal election has been attributed to the Liberal Party. The National Party held their seats. There is a misnomer in the Liberal Party that some of them are moderates, even pretentiously calling themselves modern liberals. Basically, as Professor James Allen told me yesterday, the so-called modern liberals are those whose political philosophy is something like, quote, we will be Labor but just a bit slower party. Or as the Matt Keynes of this world would have you believe, the liberals must move to the left to try to win. I'll have more to say tomorrow night about Matt Keynes' destructive entry into the Liberal Party's future. The first thing that has to be said is that these people are neither moderate nor modern. They are not liberals in the Menzian tradition. Now, about eight of them have gone and more may follow. If the Liberal Party and those running it are fair dinkum, they will say good riddance. Because while the focus tends to be on those who've lost and hopefully why they lost, the mob who call themselves progressives are really regressive. They are not modern liberals, but illiberal. It's instructive to note what's happened to some of the Liberal members who are left. For example, Paul Fletcher in the blue ribbon seat of Bradfield, who doesn't answer correspondence and is frightened of tough interviews, you'll never see him on this program, yet he's in a blue ribbon seat and thinks he's a modern Liberal. He had a 16.3% swing against him on Saturday. No Teal candidate there. The seat is now marginal. Why should Fletcher be allowed to stay? Thankfully, Zimmerman is now gone in North Sydney, but the swing against him was 14.1%. Christian Porter was thrown under the Morrison bus. Morrison never got into the ring to defend anyone who might have looked like a threat to his leadership. So the Liberal Party, in Christian Porter's seat of Pierce, had a swing against it of 14.5%. Celia Hammond, who succeeded Julia Bishop in Curtin, though I suspect not with Julie's support, Julie Bishop rightly believing there were better candidates, but Hammond is gone with a swing against her of over 13%. Ben Morton was one of Morrison's favourite mates. He's gone from Tagney with a swing against him of almost 12%. Evans is gone in the seat of Brisbane, a swing against him of 11%. These are not people beaten by the Teal vote. Julian Simmons, who backstabbed Jane Prentice to get the blue ribbon seat of Ryan in Brisbane, is gone, with a swing against him of over 11%. Jason Felinski is one of the better people, with a bit of common sense, but in Bronwyn Bishop's old seat of McKellar, he lost to a Teal independent with a swing against him of 12%. Dave Sharma, an eminently good man, but with a poor political antenna, had a swing against him of almost 9%, beaten by Allegra Spender. Michael Sucker, a good man, assistant treasurer, could go down in Deakin, a swing against him of 7%. The swing against Josh Frydenberg in Kuyong was almost 8%, but that followed an 8.2% swing against him in the last election, a 16% swing in two elections. Didn't someone see the writing on the wall? A good man, Frydenberg. He has suffered from his overzealous identity with Scott Morrison. Loyalty's fine, but not to false causes. Warren, blue ribbon liberal. No teal independent there. Malcolm Fraser's old seat. The swing against Dan Tian, over 6%. Moncrief, blue ribbon liberal. No teal candidate in Queensland. Senate on the Gold Coast, Angie Bell, not worthy of the seat. A swing against her of 7%. Julian Lisa in Blue Ribbon Barara in Sydney has had to go to preferences, a swing against him of 8%, even though I have to say he has worked hard for his electorate. But in Mitchell, Alex Hawke 
one of the grievously on-the-nose, factional, morale destroyers of the Liberal Party, Scott Morrison's henchman, had a swing against him of almost 10%. He is a corrosive force within the party. He should be gone. Scott Morrison in Blue Ribbon Cook, a swing against him of over 7%. Karen Andrews in a previously Blue Ribbon seat in south-east Queensland of McPherson got nowhere near 50% of the primary, a swing against her of almost 6%. Angus Taylor, who spent any amount of time outside the electorate of Hume campaigning for others, a very good candidate, but he's nowhere near 50% of the primary vote and a swing against him of almost 11%. Alan Tudge, the stood-down education minister in the seat of Aston, a swing against him of almost 12%. No teal candidates here. Two points can be made. A lot of focus has been on formerly safe, blue-ribbon Liberal seats that were lost to the Teals. But here I've outlined to you blue-ribbon seats that have become marginal without any Teal candidates to affect the outcome. Three conclusions should be drawn. The Liberal Party executives at federal and state level should go. They presided over this mess and did nothing to stop it. Though candidates have been beaten that the Liberal Party can do without, there are some who've held their seats who should never be given another chance. Their right to stand again must be contested at the next election and notice given now that this will happen. Mealy-mouthed explanations of Saturday's Liberal catastrophe won't do. The factions must go and be seen to go. Faction leaders must go and be seen to go. Only if merit replaces factional allegiance can the Liberal Party hope to rise from the mess it is in and even then, it could take years. Such is the damage that's been done under the leadership of Scott Morrison. Well, what better metaphor is there of the crisis in the Liberal Party than the success of the new independent member in the seat of Fowler, Di Lee, responsible for the most stunning upset amongst the 151 seats contested last Saturday across Australia. You see, people like Matt Keane in New South Wales can rabbit on about the Liberal Party criticise pre-selected candidates, attack the Morrison government of the same political ilk as his own, and Keane's behaviour passes without sanction. Though I suspect when the next state election comes around in New South Wales, the voters will have something to say. But you see, Di Lee was a member of the Liberal Party. She was suspended for 10 years in 2016 after forming an independent team to run for the mayoralty of Fairfield City against an endorsed Liberal candidate. So factionalised is the Liberal Party that this outstanding candidate, in terms of the breadth of her capacity to represent a diverse electorate, the factions won. And she lost pre-selection for the local government elections back in 2016. But she was given special dispensation from the Liberal Party state executive to run as an independent councillor, but not to run an independent team for the mayoral position. This, she was told, was in breach of the party's constitution suspended for 10 years. But Turnbull's constant attacks on the Liberal Party are in breach of the Constitution. Keane's attacks on Catherine Deves are in breach of the Constitution. Turnbull and Keane pass without sanction. Di Lee is suspended for 10 years. At the time, I remember Di saying, and I quote her accurately, you know, when I received the letter, I was shocked, but I thought, well, I've had so many stones thrown at me over the years that I've become accustomed to another hurdle, and I thought, I just have to pick myself up again. I might add, having seen the tremendous support for this woman in the seat of Fowler, 
the Liberal Party not only failed to grant her pre-selection in the local government elections in September of 2016, Daly also missed out on winning a spot on the Liberal Party's upper house ticket at the New South Wales state election of 2015. Interestingly, she had the backing of the then Premier Mike Baird, but the factional heavyweights moved in. In spite of Michael Baird in 2015, seven years ago, telling the party's state council in New South Wales that they needed to run more female candidates and people from multicultural backgrounds, the former Liberal MP Ross Cameron got it right at the time when he said, Di Lee had been denied a merit-based pre-selection and added, and I quote, in the New South Wales upper house, fewer than 1% of Liberal Party members in New South Wales get a vote, so North Korea is more democratic than the New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party, unquote. Well, you will recall that early in the campaign, I argued that we'd heard a lot of the so-called teal independents, but I thought you should hear from a real independent, Di Lee. Her story is stunning. I told you then, she was not only the Deputy Mayor of Fairfield Council, she not only had the guts to run as an independent against Christina Keneally in the Western Sydney seat of Fowler, she not only had the support of the outstanding and popular local Mayor Frank Carboni, but there's far more to it than that. Di Lee's family moved to Australia from Vietnam in the 1970s. She was elected to the Fairfield Council 10 years ago. Di Lee is now the federal member for the previously unassailable Labor seat of Fowler, where Christina Keneally suffered a swing against the Labor Party of 18.6%. The new federal member, Di Lee, joins me. <laughs> She's still laughing. Thank you for your time. How does it sound when we say the federal member for Fowler? Oh, it sounds surreal. It sounds so surreal, Alan. But thanks for having me on your show again. Not at all. You're welcome here any time. Look, it's a story yours, seriously, which is worth retelling. In 1975, after the fall of the non-communist government in Saigon to the communist regime in Hanoi, your mother fled Vietnam with the three children by boat. Do you remember that? Oh, of course. You know, I think um, I was seven years old. So every, I remember every moment. I remember when we ran. I remember the helicopters. I remember the panic and the chaos in the streets. I remember the boat journey. I remember it's, I think it was, it left do, do you remember, impression on me. Do you remember being in the refugee camp in the Philippines and waiting for your father? I do. I remember that. Do you know um, what we happened to him? No, we don't. Um, we, you know, put him down to missing in action, MIA, like many uh, men who went to war in Vietnam uh, and who fought with the Americans. So you've so, never, you've you never know, heard from or seen your father since? No, I haven't. Dear me. Um, so yeah. is, you, well, okay, single mom, single parent household. Yeah. You spent four years in Hong Kong and settled in Australia as refugees, you and your mum in 1979. How do these experiences assist you in representing the people of Fowler? I think it has a, a tremendous, um, obviously gives me a tremendous understanding of the experiences of many of the uh, refugees and migrants who settle here in the area of Fowler. Uh, people who come here with nothing, uh, who has to learn English like I did, who have to rebuild their life like I did. So I believe I have the most, uh, you know, I, I can understand their journeys that they're going to have to make and mm. I can relate to all of that. You sure um, can. So absolutely. 
You're an amazing candidate, perfect candidate, but you're not a Teal independent. I note your comment that, and I made this point last night, but Dice said, quote, I'm so grassroots, I ran on the smell of an oily rag. We had to draw down the mortgage in our home. People gave me $25 here, a few hundred dollars there, and that helped, but the majority was our money. How much do you reckon it cost you? Um, I think it costs us about uh, about a hundred grand or something like that <laughs> to run. Most probably a hundred um, grand that you uh, didn't have. <laughs> yeah, look, you know, and and my husband has, you know, has. I mean, look, we worked very hard, Alan, over the last two two three decades and save our money and and pay fantastic. you know towards our mortgage. Uh, so we we're able to draw that. It's a fantastic story, and your husband is a wonderful man. And thank him for his courtesy towards us whenever we try to make contact with you. He's been absolutely wonderful. But your electorate is 164,000 people, almost an equal split between male and female, and a median weekly household income of about 1,200 a year. That's sixty thousand dollars. They're not on Easy Street, are they? Look, no, they're not. It, it's a, a one of the you know low socioeconomic um, electorates with you know high proportion of people on low income. Um, a lot of them work in the manufacturing sector or they are tradies. Uh, so you know we have, but we do also have aspirational um, yes. young people, yes. Yes. Uh, children of these migrant refugees, setting up their own businesses, becoming professional, uh, and are really aspirational. So mm. the the two the two you know, cultures mm. are kind of meeting each other. Well, you see, they're aspirational and you're inspirational. Now, 48% <laughs> of your constituents are married, 43% never married, only 12% with a degree. But this is where your representation gains strength. 16.3% are of Vietnamese extraction, 11.2% of Chinese extraction, only 8.1% Australian. Do these people feel forgotten by government? Alan, absolutely. I think not just those groups that you have identified, but across our electorate, uh, they have felt and they have expressed that to me when they come to vote on the following day. They they have felt that both the major parties have abandoned them yep. and they have forgotten. So we are seen as the forgotten people out here in Fowler. Mm. Absolutely. And voters of Vietnamese and Chinese ancestry are more than a quarter of your electorate. So there's another block you can identify with. And then 15% of your electorate were born in Vietnam, 7% in Iraq, 3.4% in Cambodia, 2.2% in China, and 76% of voters are people for whom both parents were born overseas. Do the voters, and I suppose at this point they don't, but I'll ask you the question, do the voters fully understand your background? I think a lot of people, definitely the majority of the people living in our Fowler electorate, they know me. I, I grew up here and especially in the last 10 years being a counsellor, I've been very visible and being helpful and being there for them. So people know me as Di, uh, the counsellor, doing a lot of things and getting things done and, and, and getting to action. So, uh, But a lot of them... Uh, have heard of my story and, and my story is actually on the flyer to tell them my journey and a lot of them have said to me, oh my gosh, seeing your story on the flyer That's really it. gives them hope that they can actually take those, those steps in the future. And 10.5% of the electorate are unemployed. What do you think you can do for them? Look, I think we need to really uh, create a very innovative environment and tap into uh, these 
population that are unemployed and give them skills, upskill them for the future of work. Uh, because we're now moving in a, into an era of technology, uh, of digital, and I think we should invest in, in ensuring that these, these group of people are upskilled, including the young people here in our community. Mm. Uh, we have to upskill a lot of them to prepare them for the future of work. And that's what I'd love to do, to be able to do in my position. Good on you. Now, 28% of your voters have a mortgage, 38% rent. So that's what... 66%, how tough are things for them? Look, I think it's tough for everybody, Alan, uh, but in particular in this area, uh, they've got low income, but obviously housing affordability, a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it's first time buyers. Uh, it's, it's out of reach for a lot of, of young people. And my sister is one of them who live out here in, in Liverpool. Um, you know, saving her money to put a deposit down to, to build, you know, mm. build a home, but really? land and homes is so expensive. Find a way to make it mm. affordable for these young communities. And then, of course, the lockdowns. I just must ask you that before you go. The lockdowns, I mean, honestly, how did that affect the people of your electorate? Oh, it affected us tremendously. As you know, Alan, we were um, had the harshest restrictions in the whole of New South Wales, if not the country. Uh, we were very much marginalised and we were very much pigeonholed. And I, I, I've said it before, we were treated like second-class citizens. So a lot of the people going to the poll, uh, polling day to vote actually said that. They said, you know what, you know, no one stood up for us, no one stood up for us, but you and the Mayor Frank Carboni stood up for us and therefore this... These people don't know what we've been through and therefore they cannot represent us because they're not right. connected to what actually Absolutely. happened out here. Well, let me say something to you, Di. I'm telling you the electorate will respond to your smiling face, to your genuine commitment to them, to your willingness to work hard and your preparedness to listen. And I've no doubt that Frank Carboni will be there to lend you a helping hand and your husband. Di, it's a phenomenal triumph and I can assure you the nation is very proud of you and there's always a forum for you on this program. Thank you for talking to us. Best always, Di. And good luck in all you Thanks, do. Alan. There you are. That's Di Thank Lee, you. the lady who goes to Canberra now as an independent representative of the people of Fowler in southwest Sydney. Let's go back to this Liberal farce and wipe out on Saturday. In almost all of those seats that I previously mentioned, the Liberal candidates are miles away from 50% of the primary vote. And I would assert in many of them, they are candidates not based on ability, but on a hawk faction, or a keen faction, or a photios faction, or a pine faction. Such candidates should be dumped, along with the factional bosses. As I said yesterday, the first root and branch reform of the Liberal Party must be of a gutless executive which won't stand up to the factions. Photios and co have to be gone. They're part of the pine and keen doctrine. They've had their say in WA, South Australia, and in candidates for Canberra, and they've all been wiped out. And if a sitting Liberal, albeit state level, Matt Keane, can argue publicly that an endorsed Liberal, Catherine Deves, should be disendorsed, Keane should meet the full force of party sanctions for his criticism. If a party member dare speak out, they are suspended from the party. Why isn't Keane? I'll tell you why. Those in charge of the party are gutless. It's a party today that lacks discipline, values, and a willingness to promote the best. The Liberal Party is not the property of the Prime Minister, the Federal Leader, or some factional hack. The Liberal Party is owned by the membership, the people who stood on Saturday, sometimes in the wind and rain. But when it comes to candidates being chosen, they are treated like trash. 
Witness the way candidates were chosen in New South Wales at the 11th hour. Such a party, I'm sorry, deserves little support. Above all, as I've said, the party lacks guts, almost ashamed of what it should stand for. Abbott won 25 seats from Labor. He was knifed by the left and the rubbish began. Turnbull then lost 14 and now Morrison has lost 18. The way the party is going, there aren't many more to lose. If it was a football team, you'd change the board, the coach, the players and the strategy. It's to be hoped a tough man like Dutton will stand up to these losers and put them in their place for good. One of the platforms on which the Teals ran was integrity. If there was any left in the Liberal Party, the administration which presided over all of this for months and months and months should be booted out, state and federal. Make a fresh start. And any candidate for office should be asked to answer a simple question. What does the Liberal Party stand for? Define liberalism. And I'll tell you something, you'd be met with a deafening silence. Because as things stand, the Liberal Party is nothing more than a passport to satisfy factional ambitions. If that doesn't end, and end now, then the next Liberal demolition will be in the next year's New South Wales state election. Well, look, there's plenty happening in America, including suggestions that Biden will face impeachment for the border crisis after the midterm elections under a Republican majority in both houses. The midterm elections loom, of course, in November. But there is a bigger crisis taking place in the courts of America. The trial of well-connected lawyer Michael Sussman centres on whether he lied to the FBI while sharing potentially damaging allegations about Donald Trump at a key moment in the 2016 presidential election. Let's bring our, in our American voice none better than Peggy Grandy. Peggy, thank you for your time, but there are assertions that the Hillary Clinton campaign and the press colluded in ultimately harmful ways, leading to the public airing of unsubstantiated allegations shortly before election day. And the trial of lawyer Michael Sussman, who was in fact Hillary Clinton's campaign lawyer, is the first courtroom test of these assertions. Where are things up to and how serious is this? Well, it's very serious and the American people who know about it are very concerned about it. But interestingly, you talk about the collusion with the media because most of the American people don't even know this is happening. Over the weekend, zero minutes on mainstream media was devoted to this story. So unless you're watching something like a Fox News here or listening to a conservative media source, you don't even know that this is happening. And so the very media that was complicit in amplifying this lie originally is now complicit in covering up the exposing of it as a lie. So the American people deserve to know the truth, but they're certainly not getting it here. Well, the background of this for our viewers is that the special counsel, John Durham, was appointed by the Trump administration Attorney General William P. Barr to probe whether the federal agents who investigated the 2016 Trump campaign committed wrongdoing. Now, Sussman is a cyber security lawyer. He was Hillary Clinton's campaign lawyer. He has denied breaking the law. So, Peggy, while there have been plenty of headlines on Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, the trial of lawyer Sussman before a jury will determine whether he and the Clinton campaign lied to the FBI. You're saying that's not worthy of media coverage. 
<laughs> well, it is worthy of media coverage, but they're complicit in covering it up. And here's Michael Sussman, who's trying to have it both ways. He had great access directly to the FBI, but he's trying to say that he just went as a concerned citizen. Well, no concerned citizen could get a meeting the next day with a top attorney in the FBI and have their accusations acted upon that very day. So he's wanting it both ways. We know that he was acting on behalf of his client, Hillary Clinton, and now there's a paper trail even to prove mm. that. Yeah, the guts of the case to our viewers is against Sussman is that the Clinton campaign sought to create or use false information about her opponent in order to deceive voters into choosing her in the 2016 presidential election. Now, I suppose, Peggy, the jury has to decide whether making up false dossiers and a story about Donald Trump, a Donald Trump hotline to the Kremlin is against the law. Well, political mudslinging, there's nothing new to that. But this is something entirely different. This was a person with position and connection that fabricated a lie. You know, Hillary Clinton, this is pretty much a revenge scheme because she was frustrated about James Comey coming out, telling the truth to the American people. And she was frustrated about the timing of it, not the content. And so this was all a revenge plot and everybody was in on it. Can you imagine yeah. if the tables were turned and we were finding this information out about Donald Trump, we yeah. know it would be covered very differently. Yeah, I mean, the prosecution case is arguing, understandably, this was fraud in effect against the American people that requires exposure and condemnation. Otherwise, we'll see more of this as a campaign strategy in future elections. Durham is the, the special counsel, the prosecuting counsel, is arguing, is he not, Peggy, that the Clinton campaign made up a stunning scale of false allegations and disinformation Durham is saying unprecedented in presidential politics in an attempt to sway the election and then having failed, sought to undermine the new administration after the Clinton campaign has lost. And what do you reckon the American reaction would be to this if it knew all the detail? Well, they would be disgusted and they would be outraged because you think of all the time, the money, the political capital that was spent on defending something that was all wasted. It was all a lie. And think how much time and money could have been spent yes. for the good of the American people and solving real problems. And yet it was done. They did this so that we would chase our tail, that Donald Trump would basically be um, relegated to an irrelevant president. And it's amazing he got all that he got done with so many headwinds against him. I mean, is Sussman himself uh, telling a lie when he says, even though he's the Clinton campaign lawyer, he passed all this stuff on as a private citizen, and you've just covered that point. But at the same time, the prosecution has been able to establish that Sussman, who was Clinton's campaign lawyer, made the claims in a text message to the then FBI general counsel, James Baker, the prosecution's been able to establish, as you say, the paper trail, that Baker immediately reported Sussman's claim to others in the FBI. But importantly, Sussman billed the hours of his interactions with the FBI to the Clinton campaign. I mean, that's damaging. Well, there is a paper trail that shows he did bill for the time. And so he can't say he was coming as a concerned citizen and do that. But this is what the left does. They accuse the other side of exactly what they're guilty of. And they do to others what then they 
claim, cry foul for when it's done to them. And so they're being caught in their own little trap and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Although I don't have a lot of confidence um, in the judicial system there in Washington, DC. Mm. But now on Friday, just to wrap this up, uh, Clinton's 2016 campaign manager, Robbie Mook, surprisingly testified that Hillary Clinton approved the strategy to take to the media the same false information about a Trump-Russia hotline that Sussman wanted the FBI to investigate. Peggy, some are saying this evidence by Mook is a dagger to the defence case. How do you see it? Well, it is. It was a bombshell. Again, nobody's covering it. And in a place like Washington, D.C., where 90% of the voters there voted for Hillary Clinton, on that jury, three donors to Hillary Clinton's campaign are seated, as well as a donor to AOC's campaign. And the judge himself is an Obama-era judge who is known for being a left-wing activist. So I don't have great faith that even though the paper trail and everything points to even Robbie Mook dropping something so damaging, I just don't know that there's going to be a conviction at the end of it's this. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, basically, this establishes how the 2016 Clinton campaign embarked on a strategy to fabricate information yeah. about Trump in order to deceive American voters into voting for Hillary Clinton, not Trump. I mean, Kevin Brock, yeah. a former assistant director of intelligence for the FBI and the principal deputy director for the National Counterterrorism Centre, I read last night has argued that, quote, a strategy based on lies can never be justified. I wonder if the jury's likely to agree with that, Peggy. <laughs> well, I just laid out the stats on the jury. I don't think that's going to happen. And really, the American people deserve much better. This was a lie from the very beginning. The FBI themselves now are showing that they knew it. And the money the time, the diversion from America's real problems that was spent. This is a crime of huge proportions and it deserves to be punished and followed up to the highest level. Mm. I just don't have a lot of confidence that's going to happen. Just on the, I the abortion so. debate that we talked about last week, where is this abortion debate given that Oklahoma's legislature has passed a ban on abortion at any stage of pregnancy and the Republican governor, Kevin Stitt there, said they would be the toughest abortion laws in America. Now, the bill passed the state's House of Representatives 73 to 16. Vice President Kamala Harris said it was the latest in a series of blatant attacks on women by extremist legislature. If Republican states, Peggy, around the country are laying the groundwork to ban or heavily restrict abortion if the US Supreme Court decides to overturn Roe v Wade, how big will this issue be in the November midterm elections? Well, I don't think it'll be as big of an issue as the left thinks that it will be because they are really are the outliers in this. And even if Oklahoma bans abortions altogether, there's 49 other states that a woman can go to. And really science um, and the advancements and things like wide access to contraception are against the, the radical left on this issue. When imaging and technology shows now that even in early pregnancy, a pregnant woman is not just carrying a clump of cells, really the radical left is becoming the outlier on this. The American people know what this bill is and what it is not. And the far left saying that we should be able to have rights to abortions up to and even following the time of birth, that is way outside the mainstream of yeah. the American yeah. thought. 
Last week, we spoke about the bill to approve $40 billion in an aid package for Ukraine. The US Congress has now approved the weapons and the aid package. $6 billion for Ukraine to enhance its armoured vehicle inventory and air defence systems. Now, the Senate voted 86-11 after Rand Paul briefly held up the vote, voicing alarm about the costs. How have the Americans viewed this? Well, the American people are really frustrated and concerned about this. We re we elect our representatives to go to Congress and represent us. And yes, we should be helping Ukraine, but there are real problems here. And the American people are concerned about a wide open southern border, about not being able to get baby formula to feed their babies, about gas prices and food prices. And so, yes, we should be advocating to prevent and helping all we can to prevent the senseless slaughter of Ukrainians. We should be standing in resolve with our allies to bolster against Russia, we should send a warning shot to um, China that they should not try this with Taiwan. But also the American people are really concerned about what's happening here at home. And if they can't do both, they need to address these very pressing, very dangerous, urgent issues right here at home right now. Good on you, Peggy. Great to talk to you. Wonderful, wonderful insights. Always wonderful to hear Thank from you. Alan. See you next week, eh? There she is. What an extraordinary you, voice, isn't she, of authority about the issues in America. Peggy Grandy, who, of course, worked, as we've told you many times, for the former president, Ronald Reagan. Peggy Grande in America. Well, now it seems the National Party have drawn attention to the age-old axiom in politics where ambition exceeds ability. There's a party room meeting next Monday and convention has it that leadership positions are declared vacant. Behind the scenes, people like David Littleproud, Bridget McKenzie, Darren Chester and the previously incompetent leader Michael McCormack are campaigning to topple Barnaby Joyce. Unfortunately for them, the facts get in their way. McCormack was the leader of the National Party at the last federal election. In the seat of Calair under McCormack, the swing against the Nationals was 17.38%. They still won with a two-party preferred margin of 13.3%. This election under Barnaby Joyce's leadership there was a swing to the Nationals and the two-party preferred vote has gone from 13 to 29%. In the seat of Gippsland, Darren Chester is part of the cabal wanting to unseat Barnaby Joyce. Under McCormack's leadership, there was a swing against Chester. Under the leadership of Barnaby Joyce on Saturday, there was a swing in favour of Darren Chester. Under McCormack's leadership, the two-party preferred vote was 66%. On Saturday so far, the two-party preferred for Chester is 71%. The motivation for opposing Barnaby Joyce must have nothing to do with results. When you go to the seat of Mallee, the primary vote under McCormack was 27.9%, a swing against the National Party of 28%. On Saturday, under the Joyce leadership, the Nationals scored almost 50% of the primary vote, with a swing of over 23%. In the seat of Parks, under McCormack's leadership, or lack of it, there was a swing against the candidate of almost 8%. The two-party preferred margin under McCormack was 16%. Under Barnaby Joyce so far, it's 36%. But the picture for the Barnaby Joyce critics is even worse. McCormack saying yesterday that the coalition's electoral loss would have been more severe if Barnaby Joyce was not the leader, or less severe if Barnaby Joyce was not the leader. I have no idea what authority McCormack has for making that observation, but it doesn't come from the vote on Saturday, when McCormack in his seat of Riverina didn't make 50% of the primary and had a swing against him of 12.6%. Barnaby Joyce has a primary vote of 53% and 
and increased his two-party preferred margin from 17.6% to 33%. McCormack was a loser as a leader, and in his own electorate, they gave him a toweling on Saturday night. In Dawson, where George Christensen, the very good George Christensen, resigned the seat, it was always going to be difficult to do well in those circumstances. His replaced candidate, because Barnaby Joyce spent a lot of time there, had a swing to him, and the two-party preferred was 14.6 for George Christensen, the margin, under McCormack's leadership. It's now at 21%. In Wide Bay, Lou O'Brien's margin, two-party preferred under McCormack's leadership, or lack of it, was 13.1%. On Saturday, so far, under Barnaby Joyce's leadership, the O'Brien two-party preferred is 23%. In Page, where they suffered from floods, and Kevin Hogan did a terrific job. Nonetheless, his two-party preferred margin under McCormack at the last election was 9%. It's now 25%. In line, the excellent candidate, Dr David Gillespie, had a margin, two-party preferred, when McCormack led in 2019 of 15%. His margin is now, under Barnaby Joyce, 25%. Which brings us to David Littleproud, the Queensland member for the seat of Maranoa. Amongst other things, He's a professional, behind-the-scenes conspirator with the one aim since he entered the parliament of claiming leadership. Unfortunately, he's been joined by people like Bridget McKenzie, who should know better. Then there's Darren Chester joining the cabal with their eyes on the leadership. Joyce was always able to prosecute the case for the National Party, such that Little Proud, who enjoyed a two-party preferred margin under McCormack's leadership, or lack of it, of 25%, now, with 66% of the vote counted, the 25% has gone to 47. Barnaby Joyce harvested votes for the National Party wherever he went, except, I venture to say, he didn't set foot in McCormack's seat of Riverina. But then that may explain why McCormack suffered a swing against of 12.6% and got nowhere near 50% of the primary vote. But Little Proud is still on the phones, promoting himself. I well remember when the bush was faced with appalling drought. I remember asking Little Proud, as Minister for Agriculture, with 250,000 public servants in Canberra, to provide an inventory of the victims of drought and bushfires so that they could be specifically targeted, their problems identified, and support be made immediately available. In other words, where are they? Who are they? And what do they need? The list never materialised. In other words, under Little Proud, as Agriculture Minister, we were never told who suffered most from drought and bushfire, where they were or what their needs might be. Yet this bloke is now behind the scenes with Bridget McKenzie, Darren Chester and Michael McCormack campaigning to knock off Barnaby Joyce at the party room meeting on Monday. The Liberal story on Saturday night was a simple one. Under the wrong leadership and with the wrong policies, you have political decimation. Barnaby Joyce avoided all of that on Saturday night for the Nationals. Little Proud and his gang will take the National Party down the same route travelled by the Liberals on Saturday night. There are three kinds of failure in life. Preventable failure, unavoidable failure and intelligent failure. Little Proud represents preventable failure. Only the party on Monday can prevent failure and turmoil for a National Party, which emerged from Saturday's election under Barnaby Joyce with unprecedented success. OK, now before we go, when will they put this Joe Biden into a nursing home, both on domestic issues and international ones? The senile US president is clueless. He can't function without an auto queue in front of him. 
As we know, Anthony Albanese is in Tokyo for this Quad Leaders meeting and so far has handled himself well on the world stage. But what about Biden trying to be the class clown? He said to Prime Minister Albanese something like, because you were sworn in as PM, then hopped on a plane straight away, so you're forgiven if you fall asleep in the meeting. Unquote. It was apparently a joke. But the funny thing about the so-called joke is that it's exactly something Biden would do himself. Who could forget Biden falling asleep while meeting Israel's new Prime Minister in the Oval Office? What is also scary about this president is his freelancing on US foreign policy. He must be giving his mind as grey hairs. Asked at a press conference in Tokyo yesterday whether America would get involved militarily if China attacked Taiwan, Biden replied, yes, that's the commitment we made. Or oh, he didn't say it like that. Yes, that's the commitment we made. But American officials were quick to explain that this apparently unambiguous commitment to Taiwan's defence was nothing of the sort. So which is it? It's a bit like America's commitment to Ukraine after years of talking tough and threatening Putin. But the moment Putin strikes, all that Biden has to offer is to airlift Zelensky out of Ukraine and into the US, which Zelensky refused, of course. What about Biden's comments to the poor Afghan translators who worked alongside US forces? They were promised protection too got nothing of the kind. Instead, they were left to fend for themselves and are being hunted down now by the Taliban. And what about Biden's stalling when it came to the military coup in Myanmar last year, with tanks rolling down the street and circling the parliament and the imprisonment of the democratically elected 75-year-old Suu Kyi, the Biden administration were tossing up whether it was a coup or not. Officials couldn't agree on how best to describe the situation unfolding in Yangon, formerly Rangoon, which was under martial law. This is an insight into Biden's rudimentary foreign policy knowledge, despite claiming that as Obama's vice president, he was a diplomatic mastermind. I shake my head whenever I read about this bloke or hear him speak and ask, how long can this go on? We heard from Peggy tonight in America, who tells that Americans are shaking their heads too. With Taiwan, Biden's comments in Tokyo, and then the frantic correction from his minders, all this only proves that their vagueness and ambiguity is playing into the hands of China and its adventurism. This lack of clarity in America's position is why Xi sleeps easily at night. The world's in a very delicate position, and leaders like Joe Biden, in his mentally deficient state, put our world in more danger especially when they don't understand their own country's position on contentious international issues. Ah, well, our lefties here in the media and the parliament would call Biden a moderate. Yes, I suppose they're right. At best, moderately incompetent. That's it from me. Thank you for watching ADH.TV. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8 o'clock.